turn uh, with me in your Bibles. I invite you to do so. Uh, those of us who are familiar with College Church, we know we w- were working through the book of Judges. The book of Judges is filled with amazing stories. And uh, we've come uh, into the middle of the story, well-known story of Gideon. So Judges chapter 6. And uh, we'll be looking this morning from verse 33 uh, to chapter 7 and verse 8. And we're going to read out the story. Again, it's a narrative. We need to get a feel for the drama of the story. And so we'll read it out together and look at it over the next few minutes. So as we come to God's word, let's pray. Our Father God, this is your word. You've promised that your word will not return to you empty, but do that which you have desired it to accomplish. And so we ask that would be the case. Move among us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, uh, Judges chapter 6 and beginning at verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and uh, Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned And 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. 
So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It is written. So the Arab said to the sun-baked Englishman in the Arabian desert, a band of warriors had made their treacherous path through a particularly dangerous part of those desert sands and had encamped around an oasis. But one of their number, one of those soldiers, had been left behind. It is risen, said the soldier. That is, fate has decided. He's going to die in the desert. It's done and over. But the story goes, T.E. Lawrence, to whom this had been said, decided to go back for that soldier who was dying in the desert. He found him, rescued him, and brought him back to the oasis. And then looked, uh, the, the, the soldier had told him it is written in the eye, and said, nothing is written. We, as we come to this story in the Bible, on the verge of a battle, preparation has been made for war. And it must have felt like to the Israelites that fate was against them. Once more, the Midianites and all the people of the East had gathered to rape and pillage God's people. It had happened before. Fate had decided. It must have felt like that, but unknown to the Midianites. God's people who God had turned his back upon for their abandonment of the covenant, not for fate reasons, had begun to return to him. Gideon had torn down the altar of Baal. And as C.S. Lewis famously put it, Aslam was on the move. Here in this story, we're going to learn how to win our spiritual battles. And it's all about God and what he does. It is therefore particularly ironic that most of our contemporary modern English translations have as their header for one part or another of this story, Gideon defeated the Midianites, when the whole point of the story is that it was God who defeated them. Chapter 7, verse 2, you can see it in your Bibles. He's arranging everything so that no one would boast, and Gideon would never be able to say, nor any of Israel, that they had done it. That's how God wins your spiritual battles, in three ways. First, how God empowers Second, 
how God guides. Third, how God gets the glory. First, how God empowers. Uh, You'll find this taught to us in a fascinating little phrase at the beginning of verse 34. It says there, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, which is a much better translation than some of the earlier English translations that tended to talk about things like God's spirit coming upon Gideon, when actually in the Hebrew there's there's an image of clothing But though this is a very good translation, when I read it, my brain gets switched around here. Really, the point of it is not so much that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, uh, but the reverse. That Gideon was the clothes that God put on on that day. It's almost as if the point the Bible is making is that God chose that day to put on a Gideon suit. Or a Gideon hoodie, perhaps. I, uh, those of you who know, we know I come from the other side of the, of the pond, of the Atlantic. And if you didn't know that already by my accent, you would have picked it up that I come from Australia. No, I joke, England. Um, But I remember when I was a student listening to a British Anglican minister explain the important part of this spiritual principle with an illustration that has stuck with me ever since. And so I found it very helpful. I'm going to share it with you. He said, picture in your mind, if you will, a little bird, a small one, a sparrow or something. And see in your mind's eye how how they fly. They flap frantically. So, okay, hold that in your mind. Now, in your mind's eye, compare that. Have you ever seen an eagle fly, perhaps in the northern Michigan woods or a lake in northern Wisconsin or something, a bald eagle flying effortlessly, cruising, how? It's flying on the updraft of the wind. Well, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to, to cruise eh, on, the, on the updraft of the wind of the Spirit. You say, well, how, how, how do we do that? Well, let me just give you three little pointers. First of all, we need to understand that if, if you're a Christian this morning, that is, if you love the Lord Jesus, you've turned away from your sins, you've put your trust in, in God. If you're a Christian this morning, you're born again. You live in the age of the Spirit. John, uh, Jesus teaches this in, in John chapter 7. Uh, he says that his followers will have uh, waters right flowing up within them. And John then, the gospel explains, by this Jesus meant the Spirit, which was yet to be given but after Jesus came, has now been given. Gideon, you see, was temporarily empowered. But we now live in the age of the Spirit. And we have the gift of the Spirit permanently given to us Christians. We need to understand that. 
But then we also need to ask for the empowering of the Spirit. Jesus also teaches us this in, in, in Luke chapter 11, where he compares how if a father would not give stones to his son who asked for bread, but would give bread, how much more will not your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask for the Spirit. Paul teaches us this in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, go be being filled with the Spirit. That is, you need to constantly ask to, to be filled with the Spirit. Famously, Charles Spurgeon, the, the, the preacher from the 19th century, was once asked why he kept on saying, I need to keep on be being filled with the Spirit. And Charles Spurgeon said, the reason why I need to keep on be being filled with the Spirit is because I leak. Well, we all leak. Ask this morning. Be filled with the Spirit. Understand, ask, and then rely. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, It is those who are in the vine who bear much fruit. That is, by the Spirit of God, are rooted in Jesus and rely upon Jesus. Then we bear much fruit. So no more frantic flapping. Cruise on the updraft of the wind of the Spirit. How God empowers, first. Second, how God guides. You'll see this in this well-known part from verse 36 through to the end of that chapter where you've got this a bit about the fleece. And so Gideon says, if there's dew on the fleece alone, then that will show me one thing and then if it's the other way around, then that will confirm it to me. And often this is thought to be a, a, a kind of guidance in Christian subculture. If you're not part of the, haven't, didn't grow up in the church, you may not know this. But in Christian subculture, it's often talked about laying out a fleece from this story here. And I suppose we've all done that at some point or other. I know I have at some point or other. The sort of, it can get a little, well, it's almost like you're saying to yourself, if John is the next person to walk through that door, then I must, must mean that I should say yes to that job. Or if Susan is the next person to walk through that door, it must mean that I should date Susan rather than Karen or whatever it is. And it can get a little ridiculous. The stories are told of the unfortunate man who turned to the Bible and decided he was going to get guidance from randomly opening the Bible and randomly putting his finger on a text in the Bible. He did that and put his finger on the text. And what emerged was uh, Judas went and hung himself, not particularly encouraging. So he decided he'd try again, open it random, put his finger in the page at random. And uh, it uh, came out, go and do thou likewise. Did it for the third time, feeling a little bit like I've got to, must be getting this wrong, I need to do it again. Did it for the third time, the text that came out was, whatever you do, do it at once. Uh, no, actually, this is not guidance. Actually, what Gideon is asking for is confirmation. Did you pick that up? Verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. He knows that God has said it. He's looking for confirmation. Or again, verse 37. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry and on the ground, uh, I shall know you shall save Israel by my hand. As you have said. This is confirmation. It, it, this is 
the belts and braces approach to guidance. He knows he said it. He's looking for assurance. Which also brings up another reason why it's not an exemplary model of guidance. He's not acting in faith here. He's acting in doubts. And it's only by faith that we are able to please God. Uh, what, is, what is more, uh, this is miraculous, not a natural sequence of events that God is providentially ordering. One person coming in the room wrecks rather than someone else. This is a miracle. I suppose you could say that the first way around with the, the dew on the fleece alone could naturally happen because fleece is naturally more able to retain dew than the ground. But the other way around, fleece dry and ground wet is surely a miracle. And we can't expect God to do miracles all the time. Every, every moment we need guidance. But we can't expect him to do miracles all the time. Otherwise, they wouldn't be miracles. But then, of course, I suppose most obviously, Gideon is aware that he's at the very least pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable. Uh, verse 39, let not your anger burn against me. Don't be angry, God. Now, we shouldn't be harsh on Gideon for doing this. I mean, after all, imagine yourself. I mean, Gideon had been asked to lead God's people into battle against these marauding, violent uh, Midianites. I mean, he should have our empathy for wanting to make double, treble, sure. But it's not intended to be exemplary. And again, I suppose we've all done something like this and, 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 and the Lord graciously did answer Gideon's prayers, and he may have answered your prayers graciously. And we're not told that God actually was angry with Gideon. We're just told that Gideon feared that God would be. But if this is not an exemplary of guidance, what, what is the right way of knowing how God would guide us? I've developed a little matrix that I've shared with people for guidance, and I won't go through all, but I'll give it to you very briefly. It's five Ps that that you can perhaps remember, or if not, email me or something like that, and it'll come up again, and I'll mention it. But it's fairly easy to remember. Five questions to ask yourself about guidance. Number one, first P, priority. Is this seeking first the kingdom of God? That can quickly decide the issue. Take, say, it's your career or something. Should I accept that job in that place? Well, I'm not sure there's any good church. Or should I stay in this job that maybe is going to pay me less, but I know that I'm involved with a good church? Well, the, the, you don't need to ask for any more guidance. The decision is made. Seek first the kingdom of God. Or as another minister friend of mine sometimes says, the question to ask is, with the person you are and the gifts that God has given you, how can you most advance the kingdom of God? That is priority question first. Second, principle. The Bible does guide us itself. We have a huge advantage over Gideon. He didn't have God's written word. We do. And very often the issue of guidance is decided by just reading the Bible. Uh, for instance, uh, take that aforementioned uh, uh, imaginary Susan. Say you're trying to figure out whether you should marry Susan or not, but Susan is not a Christian. Well, the decision should be made. 
You are free to marry whoever you want, the Bible says, as long as she is in the Lord. Susan is not a Christian, and therefore to marry Susan is to disobey God, and to not marry her is to obey God. You don't need to seek guidance anymore. You need to seek power to obey. Or say you're dating Bill, and Bill's desperate to sleep with you. You're not married. Well, to say no to Bill... And not to sleep with him before you get married is to obey God and to sleep with Bill is to disobey. You, you, you don't need guidance, you need obedience. It's in the Bible, it's a principle, it's taught there. Which doesn't mean to say that if you've failed in those areas or sinned in those areas, God cannot forgive you. We've already prayed for God's forgiveness this morning and God can forgive and redeem and use even broken and sinful people like you and me. But it's not an issue of guidance, it's an issue of obedience. Priority principle. Prudence. Is this wise? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Rochelle and I, my wife Rochelle and I, we've been married 25 years now, and every night in those whole 25 years, I don't think we've missed one, we've already always read out a proverb because proverbs in the Bible is designed to give us wisdom. And very often in life, what you need is prudence, wisdom. It's a judgment call. Uh, Prudence. And then providence. God does providentially order events. And it may be that in front of you is a unique opportunity or significant opportunity that God has put before you. And it's the right thing to do to move ahead. Providence. And then the final P, prayer. I do think there is a subjective element to God's guidance. The story of Christians down through the years and contemporaneously is clear that God does give a subjective sense of what he wants us to do. But that needs to be number five. Because the truth is many people feel peaceful about things that are obviously sinful. And it's a deceptive peace. And unless, it's, unless you recognize it and repent of it, it will lead you to hell. You're disobeying God. But God does guide through prayer and subjective sense of what he wants. But it's number five. It all needs to line up. Look at it like this. I think a lot of Christians have the wrong sort of idea in their head about guidance. It tends to be that Christians think of guidance as one of two options. On the one hand, there are Christians who think of guidance a bit like a map. So God's given us a map, Uh, the Bible tells us various things, and there are rules and principles, and there's the map, and it's our job to figure out what to do, and that's basically it. There are a lot of Christians who think like that about guidance. And then on the other side, there are Christians who think about guidance more like it's, it's not a map, it's more like GPS. There's a voice in your head constantly saying, Turn right, go left, uh, a bit further ahead, 300, year, uh, 300 yards uh, uh, and merge. And, you know, there's a GPS voice. But the interesting thing about both of those common ways of thinking is that neither of them are relational. Whereas God guides us like a father 
guides his son or daughter. It's more like a father teaching a a teenage daughter how to drive than GPS. A little bit faster, a little bit slower. The father wants to train us so that we make wise decisions and grow in spiritual maturity. It's like a father guiding a child. So how God empowers, how God guides, and then third, how God gets the glory. And this, uh, if you look down with me at chapter 7, is where uh, we we now pick up the story. Of course, you would have thought that everything was now done and dusted. Uh, Gideon had been empowered. He had been guided. Now, surely, all that was left was to go out and fight. But no, not according to God. There's a very important next step. And what happens as you look down is that God diminishes the number of people. Uh, First of all, he takes two-thirds of them away uh, on the because they're being frightened. This is a fulfillment of God's teaching through his servant Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, where the, the, the preparation for battle, we're talking about spiritual war here. As it's, we're looking at it through the lens of the New Testament church, of course. But the, the spiritual the principle here is that, that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, if you're frightened, don't go to war. You're let off battle. And so that is being applied here. But then even further... The numbers are reduced to 300 through this rather strange practice of the way you drink water, or water, as they say in America. But no, I can never, it's, it's a joke in our family. Whenever I order, try to order water in a restaurant, it's a disaster. You know, the, you know, so I just like water, and the, the waiter looks at me like, what? Water. I'm sorry, sir? Water. Sorry, sir. And then eventually I give up and say, water? And they go, and that's a terrible American accent for which I beg your forgiveness. But I'm just making sure you understand we're talking about W-A-T-E-R, however you pronounce it. But it is a strange thing, isn't it? The one who laps and the one who kneels. And If you read the commentaries or listen to people on this text, you'll find there's a whole bunch of people who try to tell us that what's behind this is military tactics. It's strategic, militarily. The what's going on is that Gideon is removing those who are frightened because fear is infectious, so you've got to get rid of those people. And then uh, those who lap like a dog, that is, they bring the water up to their face, uh, they're more uh, aware, they're looking around, whereas those who get on their knees, they're not aware of the, the danger, and so you've got to get rid of them. It's... Military tactics. Yeah, right. I mean, which military commander or colonel or general do you know will be pleased to have their forces reduced from 30,000 or so to 300? Surely they would, first of all, issue a rallying call to make people brave, and then the few who are still frightened get rid of them. And the kneeling and lapping, is, to me, it just seems a bit random, frankly. No, the point is not military tactics. 
The point is what we're told, verse 2. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Look at it like this. Say you go to a construction site, a building site. They're putting up some edifice or other. You go to the construction site, and you're looking out there, and there's a guy there with the latest best tool for cutting wood or something. It's the kind of tool that you've been to Home Depot and you've seen and you've really, really wanted. It's amazing. It's got every possible new thing about it. And there's this guy in this construction site and he's cutting through wood with this amazing tool and he's just blazing through the wood. It's like, wow, what do you think? I want one of those tools. That's what you think. Say on the same construction site, there's another guy. He doesn't have the latest, greatest tool. What he has is an old wooden saw. It's rusty. The teeth in the saw are quite obviously blunted. The hand in the saw, the handle of the saw is, is covered with blue duct tape. It's a useless piece of equipment, frankly. And yet there that guy is. And he's just blazing through those pieces of wood. And he's flying through, beating the other guy with the other tool. What do you think? Who is that guy? And so God deliberately picks the worst possible tool he could find to show who he is. That's how God works, you know. He chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him, 1 Corinthians. Listen, you're not here this morning because you're so great. You're probably here this morning because you're not. Sorry if that offends you, but it's true. If God is using you for great things, it's not because you're such a great person. It's almost certainly because you're not. And if, on the other hand, you're feeling deeply inadequate, you feel like you've dwindled to 300, it could be that God is about to use you for something quite extraordinary. How to win your spiritual battles. How God empowers by the Spirit of God. How God guides through his word and his promises that are forever faithful. How God gets the glory by picking people like you and me and using them. I don't know what your spiritual battles are. I don't know what you're facing this week or this fall. I don't know what you're concerned about at work, in the office, or at school, or at home. I I don't know what your spiritual battles are. But I do know this. God's grace is sufficient. 
And maybe you're old or older. And you're thinking your day has passed. God can't use you anymore. It could be that the greatest use that God has for you is right now, at this stage of your life. On the other hand, maybe you're younger and you're thinking, how can God use me? I'm too young. It could be that God has you especially in that place of humility so that God could use you. On the other hand, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm really quite special. Could be that God is going to leave you on the bench for a long time until he subs you in, until you're ready to realize he wins the spiritual battle, not you. And he does. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is written. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we do thank you that you delight to use the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Uh, we pray, Lord, for those who are perhaps um, feeling quite broken this morning. You'd help them take their eyes off that feeling of being a mere 300 to see you and who you are. On the other hand, Lord, we also pray for those of us here this morning who are feeling pretty good about ourselves. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to lean upon you, not on ourselves. And work among us, we pray, individually uh, and corporately. In Jesus' name, amen.